You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. All right, good morning. Hope I can live up to that introduction. Wow. It always makes me weird, like weirded out when people say, oh, you're a Bible teacher. I'm like, oh, geez, that's, that's a big responsibility to have. So uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all. Happy uh, Father's Day to all of you. Um, it's kind of interesting. I, last time I taught was on Mother's Day. So I'm just appreciative that I don't have to like do a sermon on like dads. Uh, not that that would be bad, but I'm just not one. And so it would just kind of be be a little bit strange. So uh, I'm glad that I get to teach on uh, a psalm this morning, but special shout out to um, some important father figures in my life. My father-in-law, Carl, who is, uh, attends here, and uh, my dad, Jerry Elliott, who I wouldn't be where I am, of course, without him. And funny story is that my mom was texting me this morning and she was like, hey, just so you know, like, I'm praying for you just so, uh, you know, the message and all that kind of stuff. And she's like, you know, you can give me a shout out. And I was like, I did that on Mother's Day. It's Father's Day. And she's like, but uh, you wouldn't, your dad wouldn't be a father like without me. So I was like, I see how that works. So uh, thanks, mom, for all that you also do in my life. Um, Thanks for praying for me. Um, I'm super uh, excited to be here with you all this morning. Um, as Pastor Riz said, we are going to be continuing in our series on the Psalms. Um, and uh, Pastor Riz uh, kind of started us off two weeks ago talking about uh, the series and introducing the series talking about Psalm 1, which is uh, the language of wisdom. Um, and then uh, last week, Audrey did Psalm 23, which was awesome, a psalm of trust, kind of teaching us the language of trust. Um, this week, we're going to be in Psalm 32, and we are going to be talking about the language of confession, which I know is everybody's, like, favorite thing to do, and instantly you're, like, feeling uncomfortable because confession probably brings up some interesting images. Um, For me, when I think of confession, the first thing that comes to my mind, I think I'm remembering this correctly, was in, I think it was in Zorro, was it in Zorro where he like goes into the confessional booth, he's like, forgive me, Father, it's been three years since my last confession, or is that Nacho Libre? I don't know. Some movie like that. So when I think of confession, I think of like, which I did not grow up Catholic, I think of like a a Catholic confessional booth. and so we're going we're gonna to dive into Psalm 32 and kind of talk a little bit about the, the biblical language of confession and what Christian confession actually um, looks like. And this series is really cool because as, as a church, one of our values is to be, is to be a community and a people of prayer. And for whatever reason, it's been my experience, um, not just growing up as a Christian, but being in ministry, uh, full-time ministry for the past 15 years, that... For whatever reason, people get kind of weird when it comes to prayer. You can have 40 to 60 people show up on a Saturday, be like, yeah, I'm going to come and I'm going to serve because we all know how to serve. I know how to pick up a box and I know how to put a box in someone's car and I know how to smile and say, hey, here you go. But when it comes to prayer, I think for a lot of us, we don't, we don't pray or we don't show up to prayer meetings because like, I don't know how to pray. And you, you hear Pastor Riz pray, and you're like, I can't pray like that, and so you just don't pray. You know, it's like, I, I, and so it's this great time for us as a church to just submit ourselves to the truth of God's word and learn how to pray. If you were to survey, and there's been surveys, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like the Barna Report, uh, Barna, Barna Research Group, um, but they come out with um, the state of the church or the state of the Bible or the state of religion in America every year. And... It, by far, the, the vast majority of people, whether you're a Christian or not, will say that prayer is, a, is a, a regular part of their life. Everybody prays. Every religion has some sort of prayer uh, as, a, as incorporated into the religious rhythms of life, and that's, that's true for us as Christians. Um, but for whatever reason, yeah, prayer, prayer is one of those things that I think we struggle with, and I struggle with too, all the time. I'm like, wait a minute, like, what am I supposed to say? Like, why am I saying this if God already knows? It's just kind of like I start getting into my head and then I don't, even, I don't end up praying. But it's something that we as a church want to like cultivate in our congregation, a heart for prayer. And 
I did not grow up in like a liturgical setting. And so for me as a younger person, I'm like, you know, liturgy and stuff like that, that's bad. That's too rigid and too routine. But sometimes it's good to just go back to the basics, to open up Psalms, which is the prayer book that God has given his people so that we can learn how to pray. We can learn what prayer is, what do we actually pray, and then how do we actually do that and what is the purpose of it? And we're going to talk about the language of confession. We're going to look at what confession is, why do we confess, and what ultimately is the result of our confession. And um, you should have with you a little handout. Um, it's, I say little. It's the text. If you don't have it, you've got to go get one. Um, it's the, the Psalm 32 is printed out, and it also has a, a little bit of my notes. Sorry, it's really small. Um, it's like size 10 font, but it's the, the biggest I could get for being able to print on one page. Uh, but we're going to be using that, and we're going to be reading uh, Psalm 32 together out of the, the ESV version. It's just the version that I use. So that's the version we're going to use just so we're all on the same page. Um, and so if you have that, or if you have your Bible, it's also going to be up here on the screen. Uh, the first thing I want to do is just kind of read it out loud together. And if you come to our uh, equip classes, you know that this is uh, step number two. Step number one is going to come right after this, I promise. So I'm not going to forget prayer. Um, but if you have that, turn with me as I read and kind of follow along. And so Psalm 32 uh, starting in verse 1, it says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and who, in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, all, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was zapped. I think that's how you say that word. As in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and the guilt of my sin. I'm sorry, transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's pray. And the prayer that I'm going to pray today is a, is, a, is a line out of Psalm 19, verse 14, and it says this. So this is my prayer for us this morning. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Jesus, we just thank you for the gift of your word. God, we thank you that we're invited into this amazing relationship with uh, the king of the universe, Lord. And we thank you, God, that you desire to be in relationship with us, Lord, and that through this gift of prayer, we're able to co commune with you. We're able to meditate and express ourselves to you. God, and so I just ask that your Holy Spirit would speak in and through us, through me this morning. God, and would our hearts be open and receptive to what you have for us this morning. Amen. Before we get into the psalm, I want to do a little bit of review from what Audrey talked about last week. And she did an amazing job of introducing us to the genre of the Psalms, and she talked a little bit about poetry. And um, I am one of those people that did not raise my hand uh, when she asked, who loves poetry? I, that's not me. Um, I just, for the most part, was not a good student in school, and if I was to do one, if I wasn't to do something, it would be, of course, not to read poetry. I don't like reading in general. Um, but I've grown, as I've, as I've learned how to study God's Word, I've actually grown in my appreciation and love for poetry. Um, and I want to talk just a little bit about how we should approach this specific genre. This is step number three, for those of you who are tracking. Because it's really important that we set our expectations correctly. Otherwise, we're going to try to get something out of the Psalms that it was never intended to give. And the first thing I want to, us to keep in mind is that when we're reading the Psalms, we need to know 
that they're not primarily teaching doctrine or moral behavior. So this is not the book of Deuteronomy. This is not uh, ancient law uh, literature. This is not the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Or this isn't some uh, theological, theological treatise from the book of Romans that Paul wrote. Um, while there is um, deep theological truths that are being communicated, that's not its primary purpose. Most of the time, the Psalms are going to be reflecting on theology and doctrine taught explicitly elsewhere in Scripture. So we can't necessarily expect that, but we can, we can know that it's going to be talking about that. But what the Psalms are supposed to do is, first and foremost, the Psalms help us learn how to express ourselves to God. They teach us how to express ourselves to God, whether that's joy, sorrow, sadness, frustration, anger, confusion. The Psalms invite us to express those emotions to God. And that's a part of who God is, that God desires for his people to actually express those things to him. There's an invitation for that. I don't know if you guys ever knew that or understood that, but there's an invitation for us to, to approach the throne of God in frustration because of the things we see in the world, sadness, sorrow. The second thing that the Psalms help us do is that the Psalms help us to meditate on God and his ways. And this is the thing that we need to just realize, you need to slow down. This is really hard for me because I just want to like read stuff and move on. But the Psalms are meant to, figurative language and poetry is meant for us to slow down, to really meditate and to think about the images that are being communicated, right? And for some of us, that's going to be really hard to do. So it's, it's to cause us to to ponder the deep theological truths that the Psalms are actually reflecting and speaking on. And Audrey mentioned this last week that poetry is going to be highly figurative. Highly figurative. And here's a, uh, a quote from um, a Bible teacher that comes and teaches in our Bible schools. His name is uh, Dan Lewis. And uh, this is from his his commentary called The Introduction to the Prophets. And I like how he, he says this, because this has been really helpful for me. He says this, Figurative language communicates not merely facts, but passion. It employs extreme language, both exultant and raw, to impart to the listeners the way they should feel about things, as well as the way they should think about things. I like that last line a lot. It's meant for, to impart to the listener the way they should feel about things, as well as how they should think. So this is one of those, uh, the cases where we want to take not just thinking, but also feeling, and incorporate both of those into how we approach and we read the Psalms. I think for some of us, we might struggle with that. Some of us come from a background where emotions and feelings are bad, right? And we don't want to allow those things to, to, to cause us to misunderstand something. And, and there's, a, there's a case to be made. We don't want to be led by our emotions, but we need to use our emotions. We need to use our feelings as we read it because that's what figurative language is meant to do. So if we're not doing that, then we're not reading it right. We're not reading it uh, in the way that the author intended it to be read. So those are just a few things to kind of keep in mind as we actually approach Psalm 32 and as we continue in our series on the Psalms. So let's get into Psalm 32, and hopefully you can kind of see um, on that handout some of my notes. Hopefully it's not too overwhelming, but that's just kind of my process as I study, and I figured I may as well give that to you. So then you can kind of work with that as we go. Um, and so we're just going to start in Psalm uh, 32, verse 1, and I want to start off with the very first word, blessed. In verse 1 it says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And in verse 2 he says the same thing. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In the first two verses, it's, it's essentially David's summary and conclusion of his confession. This is after the fact, after he's confessed, he's reflecting back on it, and it's his introduction, and he's saying... The person who confesses is the person who is blessed. 
And I love this word, and this is actually the same word that the first psalm, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, starts with. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, etc., etc., etc. That's one of the very few things I have memorized, and I memorized that because I got a big thing of Tootsie Rolls as a kid, and so... When you're older, you don't get rewarded with candy, so then there's no motivation to memorize. But this word in Hebrew is really cool because this word blessed or blessed means happy. It means happy, which is actually a really fun word to kind of think about. Happy, happiness. I was kind of thinking about that uh, the past few days. Like, what does it actually mean to be happy? It's such a fun word. Now, essentially, you can kind of think about this word as happy as, I like to describe it as someone who is living the good life. Somebody that you look at and you're like, this person, it's it's almost like someone living a very envious life, a fulfilled life. That person is happy. That person is blessed. Now, before we go on, I want you to turn to the person next to you, if you came with somebody or if you see somebody next to you. If not, just think about it in your mind. If you were to describe or tell that person next to you, what is your vision of the good life? So turn to the person next to you and just talk about it. If you were to live your best life now, what would that look like? What is your vision of somebody who is blessed, you personally, living a happy life? So go do that for like 20 seconds and then we'll come back. All right, let's bring it back together. Hopefully you were able to share your, your vision of the, your ultimate life, your best life now. I think that's a book title. I'd be interested to hear what you guys had to share, but we're not going to just like do a shout out like in our parables class or something like that, although that would be kind of fun. And this idea of someone who is blessed, someone who is happy, someone who is living the good life was actually kind of a really common Jewish thought. Jesus actually talks about this a little bit in what's called the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. But when he pronounces blessing, it's it's the exact opposite of what people think. But he wasn't the only Jewish person during that time to kind of think about what this was like. And uh, there was a book um, or a Jewish work called Sirach or the Wisdom of Ben Sirah that was about 200 years prior to the time of Jesus, so about 200 years B.C. And this is the author is reflecting on what would it look like for an ancient Jewish man to live the good life. And he says this in chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. He says this, Happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife and the one who does not plow with ox and donkey together. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who has not served an inferior. Happy is the one who finds a friend and the one who speaks to attentive listeners. I'm not sure if that list uh, was comparable to yours, but I think it's kind of interesting to look back a few thousand years ago at what the good life was like for an ancient Jewish man about 200 years before the time of Jesus. So this is his definition of somebody who is truly blessed, right? That word happy. But what's interesting here is what does David say Because David doesn't say, happy is the man who has a lot of possessions. Happy is the one who has a big family. Happy is the one who has a big 401k. Happy is the one who has a lot of cars, right? All these things, all these, happy is the one who has two or three vacation homes. Happy is the one who um, lives on passive income. All these things that we think about, that's not what he says. And it's, it's, it's a really radical idea that we can kind of miss. And that's why I kind of wanted to set us up in this way. Look at what he says in the first two verses. He says, blessed or happy, the person that is living the good life is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
when I imagine my good life or my living my best life now, I, just to be honest with you, the first thing that came to my mind was not, oh, that I'm a forgiven person. What I think about, I really like Cars and uh, Fast and Furious, the original one was like one of my favorite movies growing up and so I love like JDMs and so when I think of the good life, I'm like, man, I would love to have like a Mark IV Supra, something like that. Like I see people driving those cars and I'm envious. I'm like, man, that's the good life. That's just where I'm at, okay? <laughs> I'm not like, man, I'm so blessed because my sins are forgiven. That's such a, ra- that's such a radical idea, I think. That according to David, according to biblical truth, that if you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven and you are the most blessed person. You should be the happiest person. You should be living the life that everybody else envies. And in all reality, most, most people that are a part of other main, major world religions are envious of you because they're always trying to find forgiveness. They're always trying to appease the gods because the gods are upset with them. And that's the contrast with Christianity. Right? And so it's so important for us to see that right away in this psalm that the good life, the one who is blessed, the one who is happy, is the one whose sins are covered. And that's going to be a direct result of David's confession. It's going to be a direct result of David's confession. So I want to just kind of, after we leave these two verses, I just want to pose a question. So in light of that reality, in light of that truth that's being communicated, how does your ideal of the blessed life, of the good life, need to be reevaluated? How, is that, how should that change your perspective of your life right now? Is that something you actually, like, value? Right? Of course, as a Christian, you're like, of course I, I say that, but is that something, like, you, you're thankful for? Is that something you meditate on? Is that something that you're constantly aware of? of wow, I am so blessed because I am forgiven. In the midst of a very materialistic world, we can get distracted. But the truth is that we as the people of God are those who are most blessed. We are living the most enviable life. I kind of want to make mention of this because the Apostle Paul is going to allude to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.19 before we move on. And I think it's kind of a cool passage. It kind of just helps emphasize this point and bring in a little bit of New Testament context. So in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 19, he's alluding to this and he says, Paul says that, that is in God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is the truth and the reality for you and I as the people of God, that God reconciled us to himself through Christ. And the good news for us is that he did not count our sins against us. And that's what David says in verse 2. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him. So that serves as kind of the introduction. The introduction to the psalm that's talking about confession, first and foremost, sets it within the framework of happiness. And if you look at that handout at the bottom in verse 11, I kind of have it again kind of in a bracket. And that's the conclusion of the psalm. And David says in verse 11, at the end of his confession, he says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. So, The biblical framework for confession is surrounded by happiness and joy and rejoicing. So if you think of confession and you don't think of it in that way, then I would just challenge your understanding of what it means to have a framework of biblical confession. Biblical confession, confessing our sins to God, should cause us and be a a time of joy and happiness in our life. And that's the framework that David puts his psalm in. Now, if you look at Psalm 3 and 4, this is kind of when he actually begins his process of confession. 3, 4, and 5 are really the the main part of his confession that we're going to focus on. And look look at how David describes what I call 
the effects of unconfessed sin. The effects of unconfessed sin. And this is where he gets really figurative in his language. He says this, When I kept silent, meaning when I did not confess my sins, my bones wasted away. Now stop what you're doing and close your eyes. And I'm going to read that one more time. And I just want your imagination to bring up that, that, that image. My bones wasted away. My bones wasted away. Again, you have to allow yourself to kind of meditate on these images. Okay, you can open your eyes. I don't know what came to your mind. Uh, bones wasting away, but that's not a really good image. Um, it sounds like someone who's really like thirsty or something like that. But if you're, you're very, you're, your innermost being is wasting away. That's how David's describing. When I didn't confess my sins, it was if my, my innermost being was just wasting away. And he says, through my groaning all day long. There wasn't a time where his unconfessed sin was not affecting him on a deep level. In verse 4, he goes on to say, For day and night, I love this image. This is a very like anthropomorphic image. He says this, Your hand was heavy upon me. He's saying as if when he was unconfessed sin, it was as if God's hand was weighing heavily upon him. He was carrying this weight around day and night. Again, another really powerful image of the effects that sin can have in our lives. It can be things that really weigh us down. He goes on to say the second half of verse 4, My strength was, I keep saying this the wrong way, zapped, right? That's the word. I keep wanting to say sapped like as in tree sap, zapped. As in the heat of summer, my strength was zapped as in the heat of summer. And when I first thought about this, for whatever reason, I was thinking, this kind of reminds me of when, I, when I'm driving down past like Hawaii Kai, going down to the east side or whatever, and I see, I see Cocoa Head on the left, and it's like two o'clock in the afternoon, and you can just see people going up and down. And I just shake my head like, you guys are crazy. Like, that's what I think of somebody that their strength is just zapped as in the heat of summer. It's like, you are just living in agony. But that's kind of like the image that David is describing here, right? You got to think about the images. This is the effect. This is David's description of what life was like when he did not confess his sin, when he was living with unconfessed sin. And I joke with Pastor Riz, uh, I think it was on Tuesday, that Teaching this, the language of confession, was really easy to come up with illustrations from my life. It was almost too easy to think of stories of where I sinned and had unconfessed sin. It wasn't like one of those things where, I, you know, if I had to teach on uh, Mother's Day or whatever, I'd be like, what stories am I going to tell, you know? But this is one like, man, I got a lot of them. And so it was hard for me to pick a good one for this one, but I, I think I picked a pretty good one. Because when I read this, I was like, I know exactly how David feels. I know that feeling. I know that feeling of day and night feeling this weight on my life. This happens often to me, but the memory that comes to my mind most vividly was when I was a kid. I had, I had a, an issue with cheating in school, and specifically in math. And I remember for whatever reason, I have a lot of good, strong memories that Abby's always like, you got problems, but this one I remember very vividly. Um, I remember the first time I was trying to learn my multiplication tables, and I still to this day, don't ask me. And I remember on the backside, it was like, you know, the answers on the backside. And for whatever reason, it, that clicked in my mind that I don't actually have to know this. There's information out there available that I can just use instead of knowing it. Because I, I struggled. I have a really hard time memorizing stuff. So I took the easy way out. Now, that might seem like a trivial thing, but the problem is if you don't learn that, then everything else later, like, you're going to be in trouble, right? Like, if you don't know your multiplication tables, you're going to kind of struggle in that. And it was years and years and years of me finding ways to get by in math without actually doing the work. And I remember, like it was yesterday, the feeling that I had of I felt like I was living in a different body, I felt the heavy hand of God in my life for years and years and years. And it was the most miserable experience I've ever had in my life. This is when I was like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. <laughs> it ended somewhere in there. And so when I think about David's expression here, I'm like, man, I know exactly how that feels. To feel the weight of your sin that's just consuming your life. 
And eventually what ended up happening is that it was kind of like this random circumstance that I, I was trying to figure out a way to cheat him. I was homeschooled, and so the way it would work is that me and all my siblings, I come from a big family, so we'd all just sit around this dining room table, and it's kind of hard to cheat when everyone's staring at you. So I would end up like building these, constructing these big walls of books around myself and blaming like my older brother being like, well, he's bothering me, right? But it was just so I could cheat. And there was one point where it wasn't really working out and I went upstairs to my room and my mom thought, you know, something's up with you. So she came in and I just kind of like got caught. And I'm not going to lie, that was one of the most miserable times in my life, but it was also one of the greatest moments in my entire life. Because at that point, finally, the truth was revealed and that weight was lifted up. And luckily, I have really merciful and gracious parents who love Jesus and like to model uh, forgiveness and stuff. And of course, I'm still living with the consequences, right, Mom? I know that, right? <laughs> but that, to me, is such, a, is such a, an image that I relate to when David describes this. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you have experiences like that or you're currently experiencing that. Um, and some of us may think of that as a bad thing, but I, I want to propose to you guys that I think that's actually a really good thing. I think that what I, what I think is happening and what happened in my life was that that was God's conviction in my life. And conviction is a really good thing in the life of the believer. It's actually a gift of God's mercy because God does not desire for you to remain in your unconfessed sinful state. God, what God wants to do is he wants to invite you into the process of confession so that you can be reconciled into right relationship with him. And for us as, as people, we tend to just want to run from that. And so the conviction is, uh, is God's grace calling you back to him. And one of, the, one of my favorite verses is in, uh, in John... Uh, chapter 16, 7 through 8, this is what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. This is one of the roles that the Holy Spirit has in the life of the believer and in the world. He says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is one of the primary roles that the Spirit of God has and plays in the life of the believer is to convict you of your sin so that it moves you to confession. And that's where we're getting at in ver, uh, verse 5. Look at what it says, David says in verse 5. And I'm, I broke up verse 5 in my notes as 5a and 5b because 5a has to do with the confession and then 5b is the actual result of his, his conviction, uh, confession. I'm sorry. He says this, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And I kind of want to stop there. And what I'm going to do here is I want to, um, if you guys ever seen Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You guys remember that show? Um, each contestant would have lifelines where they could like, it would be 50-50 or call a friend. I'm calling a friend. Um, and he doesn't know he's my friend, but I like to imagine uh, Tim Mackey as my friend. And because I don't know uh, ancient biblical languages, I need somebody who does. And so he does a great job of breaking down uh, this, this verse. And so I kind of want to take a little bit of his material. And if you notice in verse 5, David kind of uses three different um, words to describe his sin. And I kind of want to just show you in Hebrew the three words that he uses to describe and kind of the... the the nuance of each of those words because it kind of helps us get a bigger picture of what David is talking about here. So the first thing he says is he says, then I acknowledge my sin. And I think most of us are like, yeah, sin, I kind of get that. That's a very generic general. That's like our, our term in English that we have. But in Hebrew, it's chata'ah, which I think I pronounced that kind of. And sin in Hebrew is kind of, is kind of general and it just means moral failure. So David here describes, I acknowledge that I, I've, I've failed to live up to your um, holy, righteous standard. But then he uses another word. He says, I did not cover up my iniquity. And the word iniquity is this word avon, and it means going astray. Going astray. And I don't know if this is actually what it means, but when I think of going astray, I almost think of things that are almost like unintentional. They're not really like, we're not actually meaning for these things to happen, but they just are happening and they keep happening. These are these, 
going astray. And then the third word that he uses, he says, I will, um, I will confess my transgressions. And the word transgression is pesha. And this means willful violation. So if the, if the word above that kind of meant going astray, this one is like, I'm willfully violating your law. And so those are the three words he uses. Again, in English, we just use the generic like sin. But in Hebrew, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. He's describing how he's failed uh, morally, how he's gone astray. And even at times, he's willfully violated uh, the righteous standard that God has required him to live up to. I think that's kind of interesting. And maybe that helps you uh, put some of uh, your life into perspective. There may be uh, some of you who know that you have um, willfully and intentionally gone against the commands of God. And there may be some of you here that are like, if you were just to take a minute and evaluate your life, you can find areas in your life that you're like, yeah, like I'm not intentionally doing that. But if I, if I was to be honest with myself, I, have, I, I am going astray here. Or I am going astray here. And they may be subtle, uh, but they're there nonetheless. The other thing that we see in the first half of verse 5 is David's, what I want to call his process of confession. Because I don't want to say steps, otherwise we'll make it into a formula, and then it will be void of pretty much all meaning. So I want to call it his process to confession. I like steps. Step one, two, three. So here we go. Process one, two, three. The first thing that David says is that David says that he acknowledges his sin, meaning that David recognizes and accepts his sin. David acknowledges his sin. And for many of us here, this is probably where it all goes wrong. Some of us can't even get to this place in our hearts where we can even come to the acknowledgement that we are living in sin or we have committed some sort of sin. I think, Deddy, you mentioned this during the parable class. We were talking about the contrast between Simon the Pharisee and the quote-unquote sinful woman. You talked about the sin of pride. And this kind of reminded me of that. Like, sometimes our pride is so big that we can't even get to the place of admitting that we've failed to live up to, to God's standard in our lives. One thing we need to make sure is that we don't, we don't minimize sin and we don't try to justify our sin. If you're like me, I love to justify. Well, I, I, was, I was right to do this because X, Y, Z, right? That's, that's, not a good, that's not a good place to be in. The second thing that David does is that David did not cover his iniquity. David did not cover his iniquity. And I think for me, this is another natural tendency that I have, especially as like a little kid. You think of a little kid that's like gets caught doing something wrong. What they try to do is they try to cover up for themselves. So it makes it look like nobody's going to find out, right? I got pretty good at doing stuff like that. Again, for some of us, we try, we, we're, in the, we're in this habit of just trying to cover up or like fix sin. Like there's nothing to see here. Like no, no nothing to see. Like don't worry about it. And then the third thing that David does is that David confessed his transgression. And the word confess just means to tell the truth. You can confess something that's good. I can confess my love for my wife, right? Confession doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you're confessing some sort of sinful thing, but it just means to tell the truth. And this is probably the hardest part for us, is to just tell the truth, just to be honest with ourselves. To just simply tell the truth to recognize that I have failed at some point in my life or I am failing at some point in my life. <clears throat> and this kind of is interesting to me because when I was going through this, I, I immediately thought of a, a passage that is almost the exact contrast and it's the most famous sin story in the entire Bible. And that's in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Adam and Eve. And what's interesting in that story is that Adam and Eve do the exact opposite that David does here. After they, they sin, they disobey, they rebel against God by eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what they do is that they cover up themselves. They try to cover up. They sow fig leaves on to cover up themselves. They hide from God, right? It says that they hid because they were afraid. They try to hide from him. And then instead of telling the truth, instead of just being honest, they blame other people, right? Adam says, well, it was her. And then she's like, well, it was the serpent. It's the exact opposite of what David does. 
Which is quite profound because the story of Adam and Eve is, I think, the most natural tendency for us as humans. That's kind of what we end up falling into when we sin. Is that we blame other people. We try to hide or we try to run or we try to fix things ourselves. And here David is saying the exact opposite. That when we have sin to confess, there's this invitation to just acknowledge, to tell the truth, and to come humbly to God. And kind of as we come to kind of the the concluding part of the sermon and as we kind of think about transitioning into kind of how we're going to respond in application to this, we I want to talk for a minute about the most important part of this psalm. And it's the second half of verse 5. And this is really the most important, and if you're going to walk away with anything, is to walk away with the truth that's being communicated here. We just see David go through a process of confessing. David confesses his sin. And the most amazing part about the psalm is the next line. And what does David say? What was God's response to David's confession? It says, And you forgave the guilt of my sin. The result of confession is God's forgiveness, period. And that's an amazing thing. That's a beautiful reminder for us that we shouldn't allow our sin to push us away from God, which is our natural tendency to do. But biblical confession is an invitation that God invites us to confess. And God is, the, his response is to forgive you. His response isn't to say, well, you're going to go out, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that, and you're going to get punished, and I'll think about forgiving you, and maybe if you prayed harder, or you gave more money, or you served more, then I'll forgive you. No. David confessed his sins, and God forgave. And this is the most essential, foundational part for us to understand as Christians when we think about the biblical language of confession. David understands that true happiness, this is why he says, blessed is this person, because David understands that true happiness, the person who's living the most blessed life, is the one who is in right relationship with God. And that's a direct result of confession and receiving God's forgiveness. And I think for some of us, it just seems too easy. What do you mean, all I have to do is confess my sins and God forgives? Didn't David have to go make a sacrifice or something? Like, isn't that what people did in the Old Testament? You know, they got to go sacrifice something. Did David have to, like, pay a tithe or, you know, give a bunch of money or do community service, something like that? No. He didn't. He simply confessed and God forgave. And that is a struggle for some of us as humans, is because human beings tend to want to control outcomes. That's why we have these religious systems that are set in place, that if you're going to, if you're going to receive the grace of God, you have to do X, Y, Z. Those are human, those are man-made traditions set up so we can somehow earn God's favor, so somehow we can earn God's forgiveness. The reality of the Bible is that you can do absolutely nothing to earn God's forgiveness. You can do absolutely nothing. It's a, it's a beautiful, free gift that God extends to his people. So this is the point, that the basis of Christian confession has absolutely nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with him. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. In one of David's most, probably David's most famous psalm of confession is in Psalm chapter 51. And this is in David's confession um, when he uh, murdered Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba. Pretty egregious sins. In the first line of that psalm, David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So David appeals, when David confesses, he appeals to the nature and the character of God. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. And what's interesting here is that David is actually uh, referring to the most quoted verse in the Old Testament, and it comes from Exodus chapter 34, 6 through 7. And this is when God, after he had delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he's now revealing himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, 
This is literally God's self-revelation of himself. And this is what it says. It says, the Lord passed before him, talking about Moses, and proclaimed, and he's describing himself. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, is a God that is merciful and gracious. This is why David is appealing to that, because he's like, that's who God is. I know you to be merciful and gracious, so I'm appealing to you and to your character in light of my need for forgiveness. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. This is probably one of the most, if not the most significant passages in the Old Testament. Like I said, it's the most quoted in the Old Testament. And here David is alluding to that. I think it's a fun example is if you guys came to our uh, Jonah Equip class, which happened quite some time ago. Um, this, was, this was such a reality to the lives of the Old Testament characters that Jonah actually refers to this. If you guys were there, you remember this. Jonah was called to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, which were the enemies of God's people, and Jonah hated the Ninevites, and so he didn't want to go. And after the Ninevites receive Jonah's word, and they humble themselves, and God forgives. Jonah goes outside the city, and he throws a pity party because he wanted God to destroy his enemies. And he actually appeals to that verse. And it's really interesting. He says this in verse, uh, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. He says this. It says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Because when, in, when the book first starts off, Jonah runs away from God's call. And the, the whole point is you think that he's running away because he's afraid of the Assyrians. He's afraid of the Ninevites because they're big, bad, scary people. But that, that's not the case at all. And he says right here. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's like, I know that that's who you are because you revealed yourself. And that's why I didn't want to go preach to Nineveh because I didn't want them to receive the message and to get forgiveness. And so you have... The Assyrian Empire, one of the most brutal empires to ever exist in the ancient world that were the enemies of God's people, they respond to the message of Jonah and it says that God relented, that God forgave. Even a pagan nation that doesn't know God, that has, living, that has lived in uh, cycles of evil, some of the most evil things you could ever imagine, when they repent, when they confess, God forgives. It's across the board. The Apostle John picks up on this idea in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in light of this biblical truth and this idea about who God is, the fact that he is merciful and gracious, how should this change my understanding of confession? How should this shift my perspective? Instead of viewing God as a God who is angry and vengeful and wrathful, that would push us away from coming to him in confession. This should radically shift our understanding to know that God is merciful and gracious and there's an invitation to come to him because he is willing and able to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we come to an end here this morning, I just want to summarize a few of the things that we pointed out before as we move into the application. A few things that we, we, we kind of saw is that confession, first and foremost, leads to the good life, a life that is lived in right relationship with God. We saw that conviction is actually a gift of God's grace in our lives, that it's meant to lead us into that place of confession. Confession is admitting the truth about my sin and recognizing my need for God's mercy. And finally, confession has nothing to do with me and has everything to do with God. It's founded on his goodness and not my own. And I want to um, kind of leave us off with, as the worship team, I'll just invite the worship team to come back up. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, uh, Paul says this, which I think is really profound. He says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
that God's mercy, his grace, his goodness is supposed to lead us into a place of repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to that place. It's not the the wrath of God. It's his kindness. And so what we're going to do as a response time this morning, it's going to be a a little bit led. And so as the worship team kind of gets ready, is that the first song, what I want us to do is I want us to meditate on the goodness of God. And I want that to be the starting place that will then transition us into a place of confession. So the first song, we're going to just meditate on his goodness. And then as I transition into the second song, this is a time, an invitation for you to respond to what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning. It's an invitation to express yourself to God through the language of confession. This is a great time. We have people, we have a prayer team. This is a great time to to ask somebody on the prayer team to pray with you. It's an amazing time to turn to the person next to you or the person you came with and just have them pray for you. James talks about this idea to confess your sins to one another. Confession doesn't just have to be an individual experience. It can be a corporate experience, and that's important. And and during the second song, this is also an amazing opportunity to, to come up and to receive communion. The ultimate symbol, the ultimate reminder of the work that Jesus did on the cross the source and the ultimate uh, foundation for our forgiveness. And then I'll come up and kind of transition us into the last two songs where we're going to respond with just praising and thanking him in the way that David ended in verse 11. He says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. This is the ultimate conclusion to receiving God's forgiveness. It's a cause for us to celebrate and to praise him. And if you guys need any encouragement, this is the last thing before uh, we enter into a time of worship. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, it says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.